To start out this morning, I want to tell you about a vision that I have. I'm doing a vision. As in seeing stuff that ain't there. Or maybe it was. That's your call. It was in 2002 at the Service of the Living Tradition at the Annual General Assembly of the Unitarian Universalist Association. Every year at the Service of the Living Tradition, we mark the rites of passage of all ordained clergy, of those who are just entering the ministry, of those who have retired from active service in the ministry, and those ministers who in the past year have died. Deep in my heart that year, full in my heart that year, is Reverend Roger Pound. Roger was a great old ministerial soul. I only got to know him a few years, the last couple of years at the end of his life, and it was in his late 60s when he passed on. And even though we only knew each other a few years, I wasn't unfortunately able to be with him by his bedside as he was dying. But he left explicit instructions with both of his sons that he wanted me to give one of the eulogies at his funeral. It was a great honor in my life because Roger was known and beloved by many, many people. Not a lot of the other generation, of that older generation of male ministers have really reached out to me, frankly, all that much. Most of my models in ministry were women. But Roger really extended the hand of his heart and fellowship towards me, and I took it. I used to drive up the coast in Florida where I lived and pick him up in his 55-plus community, and we used to go to spring training games together. Long after the last pitch, we would sit there in the sands as the ushers were sweeping up around our feet. And he would tell me stories of his ministry. I felt like I was being given a great oral history of our movements and of this one particular wonderful man. He told me about how he got fired in 1967 for trying to integrate the rural church in Tennessee that he served as a Presbyterian before he became Unitarian Universalist. One of the other great things about Roger was that he had over 30 years sober when he died. But he wasn't above at all sharing the story of his misguided youth, trying to let me know about the ups and the downs of life in the clergy, and of his life in particular. At that service of the living tradition, Roger's name is going to be mentioned aloud. They call it <coughs> Roll Call. Awful name. But I was waiting, I was waiting to hear his name, and you know, Callan, C, was right there at the beginning. The names are embedded in a larger prayer of gratitude. Gratify, gratitude for the lives that have been lost and the lives that have given themselves for so many years in service. So I sat there in the service, eyes closed, listening. Listening, a long list that year. Roger's name, the names of other people whose names I recognized only slightly, and many names I didn't recognize at all. And then it was weird. I began having this odd, ocular kind of thing going on in my head. Even with my eyes closed, it was kind of like a fuzzy PowerPoint slide show was being projected on the back of my eyelids. And no, I haven't taken anything this morning, I swear. What I saw, one after another, after another, after another, was faces. Clear and distinct faces. I took off my glasses and literally, you know, did one of these. What's wrong? Something going on in my head? Closed my eyes again. Closed my eyes and rejoined prayer, rejoined that roll call. And there were the faces again. 
one after another after another after another. But this time I didn't try and wipe it out. I just let this unexpected private movie run inside of my eyelids. The prayer continued. And now we commit those spirits who have served with perseverance, with compassion, with love, this beloved community and many beloved communities. We commit them into your hands, O oh God. We know that they have labored long. And now they have rest. Now they are at peace. And the face is kept being shown. Was this God? Was this the Spirit? Was it my subconscious acting up and bringing all these names before me? I had no idea. But what I experienced when I just let the faces roll on and on and on was an amazing sense of tranquility. An amazing sense of peace. An amazing sense that there is a connection that death cannot sever and time cannot bridge. Sitting there as the prayer went down, I felt fully blessed, fully alive. My soul was lifted up and into a place of the deepest peace I have ever, ever experienced, I tell you. The prayer ended. He stood to sing. The faces left my eyes. But my own face, my own face was smiling. For all those that So I ask you, was this God? I ask you, was it just an overactive imagination on my part that didn't know how to say goodbye to a friend that I didn't want to say goodbye to? Maybe that's what you're thinking. I don't know. Maybe the question is, was it real? Was it true? Could it be trusted? That's a slightly different question. Is it true versus can it be trusted? But first, just a word about visions. Maybe some of you have had them. Let's talk about them at some point. I'd love to hear about your visions. If you've ever maintained a regular contemplative spiritual practice, at some point, I guarantee you this, you will experience an altered state of consciousness. Do not be alarmed. <laughs> your normal state of being will resume eventually. Just ride the wave while you're on it. It's pretty, pretty cool. But also, don't make too much of it. It's kind of like this story. A student was meditating one day when he had a powerful vision. As he was sitting on his meditation cushion, he had the sense, the real sense, that the Buddha, the enlightened, awakened one himself, was sitting right there next to him, meditating with him, breath by breath, moment by moment. And the student was so enthralled with this, by this experience that he got up off the meditation cushion, ran excitedly to his teacher and said, Wise one, I have seen the Buddha himself. He was meditating with me. This is such a wonderful thing. Is this true? Is this enlightenment? Have I reached it? Have I realized my full Buddha nature? I mean, he was panting, he was so excited. Thought how blessed he was that he was visiting in this way. He couldn't wait to hear how amazing the teacher would think it was as well. The teacher calmly turned to the student and responded, Just go back to your meditation seat. Resume your breathing. I'm sure the Buddha will go away. <laughs> Don't get blown too far off course by all the esoteric stuff and all the esoteric promises of spirit. Spirituality finally is for the everyday. It's less for the mountaintop than it is for life down every day in the valley. But what about that vision? 
and perhaps some of the visions that you've had over the years, can they be trusted? Is there enough evidence to believe it? Is there enough evidence to think that maybe we were being touched in some deep way by the Spirit? And it's here that we learn there is a difference between faith and belief. Scotty McLennan, some of you might know as a UU minister, he's the chaplain of Stanford University, and he's the author of a great book called Finding Your Religion that was really popular over a decade ago. He says this about the difference between faith and belief. Faith is not just a particular belief, the holding of certain ideas, which is a function of the mind alone. Beliefs can be expressed in propositional forms to which adjectives true and adjectives false can be attached. Faith, by contrast, is deeper. It is the opposites of nihilism and despair. Faith may or may not include beliefs, but it is much larger. It is the ability to experience our universe and our lives as a meaningful place. Having faith means that our lives hold together and make sense at a deep level, rather than just seeming absurd or playing out the days. Therefore, your religion is something you not only think about, but sing and dance and eat and paint and sculpt your way into. You find your religion. To find your religion, you must engage all of your senses and not just the mind that says yes or no. You should feel it as well as explain it, hear it as well as see it, taste it as well as smell it, and hear it. We often talk about a Unitarian Universalism that we're a creedless religion, and that is true. Those of, you, those of you who joined, those of us who joined this morning, had to pledge fidelity to no creed. You had a sense that you could grow here and you found here a people, but you did not have to pledge fidelity, yes or no, to a creed, something like the Nicene or the Apostolic. But the original meaning of creed actually gets to what faith is all about. The original Latin word for creed is a cognate of the word part. It's also related in some ways to the Hindu word for faith, which I love, is sradha. It means that what we set our hearts upon. Think of it. So often people ask, do you have faith? Have you been saved? Do you have faith? As if it is a content to possess. As if it was a content you could hold and sort of say, well, I'm in 90%, I'm going to get that last 10% of content, and I'm going to be 100% faithful. Not the way that faith is, though. Faith is the things that we set our hearts upon. Creeds are what we believe with our fullest being and then go about living our lives so that our lives and our steps and our hearts and our entire self is lived at its best in accord with what we hold to be most true about ourselves. And in that way, it's really easy to understand. Maybe not where our vision comes from, but what it means. What did my vision mean? Or any religious experience. What does it mean? This point is well illustrated by a story, probably apocryphal, about Beethoven. It is said that after the composer had just composed another masterful concerto, he sat at the piano for an audience of friends, a private audience, to reveal his latest work. When he finished, they of course applauded. And after, one friend asked him, What does it mean? Beethoven said nothing. He uttered no answer. He sat back down at the piano. He played the concerto through from start to finish exactly as it was before. And he said, that is what it means. Things have a value in and of themselves. In that moment, at that service, I experienced a profound 
sense of peace, of joy, of a life or a moment that is not always my own, beyond fear, beyond doubt, and even beyond death. That is what it meant. There's always a tendency in our lives, there's always that tendency to want to secure our faith and make it into a belief, saying that somehow it has to belong to this particular slot or this particular content, or it's not really real, we think we can't trust it. We want to prove the value of spirituality against doubt to prove its validity. There's so much hype these days. There is so much hype about the resurgence of that old, ancient debate between faith and science. And old scores are being settled. It's like Galileo's Revenge. A few weeks out ago, there was a New York Times Sunday Magazine article that had a story about how faith could be justified from an evolutionary perspective. I can't possibly go through all the different arguments because one after another after another. But what it came down to was basically that some theorized that faith in God was an evolutionary accident. That what we had to do was learn how to trust each other to grow into this life. And so what we had was a misapplied understanding of the universe. Well, some thought in the article that faith was a helpful adaptation, to use the evolutionary language, a helpful adaptation to reality. But in our neck of the woods, really close by actually, there's another perspective. A UPenn professor named Mark Newberg, what he's done is really cool. He has studied the actual brain scans, the physiology of spirituality, neurotheology as it is called. He studied the brain scans of monks at meditation. What he's found is that at the apex of meditation, when the meditator felt that they were truly most at one with the universe, most felt that sense of, to break apart the word atonement, what does it mean? At one meant. That sense of unity, that sense of community. He studied the brain scans of these monks at meditation, and what he found is amazing. The part of the brain, forget what it's called, mine's working, I guess. <laughs> that differentiates self from object, other from ourselves, subject from object. This part of the brain flattened. There was nothing going on there. It led to that sense of complete and profound unity. And so Dr. Newberg, what he thinks is that we are hardwired for God, or more generally for spiritual experience, that straight out of the packaging, the basic stuff of our lives, we are ready for spirituality. Even Sam Harris, as some of you might know, I respect his work, I often don't agree with it. He's one of the most voracious and sometimes vicious critics of religion. He practices a form of Buddhism on a regular basis. And even he says that there is no proof that consciousness, the gift of human consciousness, is reducible to our brains. That there may be something deeper that holds all of this together. He leaves it as an open question. So which is it then? Which is it? Is religion the natural expression of our inborn capacity to know something of God and know something of spirit? Or is it an illusion handed down from generation to generation like a bad genetic habit? Well, we're here in a spiritual community this morning, so we can probably gauge a certain number of your answers. The question is, are there reasons to believe? Yes, there are. Are there reasons to doubt? Yes, there are. How could it be both? Well, Einstein put it this way, that the opposite of a small truth is a falsehood. The opposite of a large truth is another large truth. I don't think we'll get these questions ever settled about where we come from or where the ideas of our spirit comes from. And that's where the important work of 
religion starts. After the vision, after the epiphany experiences, which I hope you have been blessed to experience, or maybe you will experience at some point through your time here at Wellsprings, after the vision we have to return to life. And there we find the evidence for whether it was true or not. As the writer Jack Kornfield says, after the ecstasy, you still have the laundry to do. There's still the basic stuff of life, the everydayness of the everyday, just plain old existence, calling us out, though, if we listen to it, to be something real, to love, to be meaningful, to know one another, not just playing out our days despairingly or waiting for the esoteric stuff of spirituality on their hand to come visit us once more. I think that religion works its magic when, frankly, it is at its least magical at all. Spiritual life is integrating, on the most profound level, the realization of the high points back into life. Great. I had this amazing vision a few years ago. It continues to stay with me. It continues to bless me. So what, though? So what if I can't learn to be patient in back of the person in the supermarket line who is picking out all of her dog food coupons and can't seem to straighten them up? So what if I am stuck in traffic and the person in back of me is laying on the horn and I want to, well, you know. So what if I, and fill in the blanks for yourself what applies here, so what if I cannot in the everyday learn to be a better minister, better husband, better son, better person. That is the practice for the everyday, and that's the place where our visions of life beautiful have to be, if they're going to be meaningful and trusted, integrated into our daily existence. I think that finally people don't want to know about the content of our visions and of our religious euphoria, if you know it, until they know that you can see their particular lives. The visions are so far out of the horizon at times. The more important vision is what we have here amongst us. The ability to acknowledge, the ability to see, the ability to recognize, and not to put on the blinders that want to say, I'm waiting for the next big thing. I'm waiting to get past you so I can move on to what's really going to make me happy. Here amongst us is where life is and where the spirit is. Faith can only finally really be shown. It can be pointed to with words, like fingers pointing to the moon, we talked about a few weeks ago. But faith is a way of living in the world. It's not simply a way of thinking. And all true faith religion, liberal or orthodox, or dogmatic or otherwise, all great religion is about show, not tell. There is more truth in what we are shown than what we are told. If we are told something, well then we can accept it or reject it intellectually. We can say yes to this belief or no to that belief. But it's not really our own. When we talk about living a life of integrity, as one of our core values says here at Wellsprings, what we are talking about is showing and practicing our faith on a daily basis. So it's not really much good to tell the world that we believe in hope. Rather, live a life that is hopeful for all the world to see. Don't tell the world that we believe in the power of love, but live a life your life in such a way so that love is who you are. Don't tell the world that we believe you do in God, but live such a life that God lives through you and through your actions, and the divine is made manifest in our world through our behavior and through who we are. Finally, the most powerful faith is when you show other people who you are at your best. 
Show them the true product of your faith, the true product of your love. Psalm 42 talks about deep that calls unto deep. It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture. The deep that calls unto deep. There is so much in our lives that is superficial, that is transitory, that frankly we can dispense pretty easily with. But still, and I don't think we'd be here today, and certainly we wouldn't be having a new member Sunday, but some basic level, finally, we weren't suckers for authenticity. If what we wanted, really, really wanted, was something real, we try to be suckers for authenticity here at Wellspring, and committed to honoring that life of integrity. Finally, all truth is incarnated, all faith is lived out in our limbs. Gandhi put it this way, be the change that you want to see. Become the change that you want to see. In all things, the Spirit can speak in you, asking us to pay attention. Elizabeth O'Connor wrote a great book about 30 years ago called The Eighth Day of Creation. She said that when we really live in concert with our spiritual gifts, our deepest understanding of ourselves, we become committed on an ever deeper level. She says it becomes harder then to hang back, to be loose or aloof and thinking that goodness or justice or mercy or compassion or kindness is something we can practice when we have enough time. The time is here and the time is now to begin becoming the change that we want to see. We do it in small ways, the smallest of ways, but here amongst us. And when you leave here out in life, there is the crucible. Frederick Buechner, who's a novelist, said this way, what makes me a believer, finally, is not a creed, but the fact that from time to time there have been glimpses. Glimpses I've had of something extraordinary and beyond the realm of the immediate. You encounter the holy, though, in various forms, which unless, unless you have your eyes open, you may not notice. Unless we have our eyes open, we may not notice. There is something that we are called here to honor as a religious community, something beautiful, something ineffable, something that finally doesn't have a name. We ourselves, in our beliefs, our fingers pointing to the moon. But we know that we can answer that hope with our daily practice. We know that we can answer that belief with our sense that we honor the beauty that is within us, the love that is within us. So perhaps sometimes when we wait, or we're bored or edgy, or another thing is coming down the pipe. We can turn our thoughts back to attention. We are partners with creation community. We are partners in advance. We are not masters, and we are not passive. We are partners in advance, and we are invited to take up that dance. And so in this day of membership, I offer you this Whitman poem. Whitman, who is the truest universalist that I ever knew. He said this about each of you. Each of you, and so it's true for all of us, not just individually, it's true for all of us. The sum of all known reverence I add up in you. And in you. And in you. And in you. I added those parts, it's not very important. All architecture is what you do to it when you look upon it. All music is what awakens from you when you are reminded by the instruments. The wonder everyone sees and everyone else and the wonders that fill each minute of time forever. It is for you. It is for you, whoever you are. It is no farther from you than your hearing and your sight are from you. 
It is no farther than your hearing and your sight are from you. So let us be the change that we want to see in this world. Let us recognize that the things of the Spirit are not far away, they are close at hand. The old Native American way of talking about this says that there are inside of us two dogs. Two dogs, one is kind and loving and generous and noble and loyal, and the other, mean, harassing. Doesn't want to hang with anyone. And it's asked of an old man at one point, well, which of these two dogs is most important? Which of these two dogs is most powerful? And his answer? The one that I feed. Let us feed ourselves together. Amen. We are living blessed. Let's pray.